0: You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them.
1: This is crack. Rock cocaine. It isn't glamorous or cool or kid stuff. It's the most addictive kind of cocaine and it can kill you. I'm gonna steal just once. I'm going to sleep with him for meth just once.
2: I'm only
3: gonna try meth once. I'm I'm not gonna be like that guy. Hey look, I'm only gonna smoke meth once. I'm not gonna be like that guy.
1: Look, I'm just gonna shoot up just, just once, all right? I'm not gonna be like that guy.
2: I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna be like that guy.
4: I'm only going to do meth
3: ones. These PSAs are why we have such a cartoonish image of stimulant users in our collective imagination. These ads, specifically from the Montana Meth Project, and none other than Pee Wee Herman, they paint a scary image of a human being addicted to stimulants. Their skin is covered with sores and scratches, like they've been attacked by fire ants. Their eyes are wide, and their gaunt jaw jerks relentlessly. Methusers are creepy, unhygienic, unpredictable, and of course, it only takes one hit to wind up that way. Small wonder why people harbor such prejudice views towards stimulant users. And we do our best to avoid all contact with them on the street, among the hierarchy of drug use, meth users are probably ranked close to the very bottom. And like the way media covers most drug use disorders, they tend to feature and zoom in on the most severe extreme cases. This is a dehumanizing psychological trap with pernicious effects. The small minority of severe users takes center stage and becomes a prop and a stand-in for all users. For this segment, I'm going to do the opposite. You'll hear from people who use stimulants every day, either illicitly or as prescribed, and who, as if by some miracle, haven't turned into flesh-eating zombies. You'll hear about their relationship to the drug, how stimulants actually help them focus, stay alert, do their job, stay organized, and on top of things. You'll also hear about harm reduction, which is typically very opioid-centric, can also be applied to stimulants. I'm Zach Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica.
2: Sure, I currently am living in West Virginia. Uh, I've been working pretty much in the service industry my entire life, Uh, so it's a little bit easier, you know, in some cases to Get away with drug use but i've been i was prescribed adderall uh whatever stimulants for most of my life and now that i can't get them from doctors uh, i've kind of turned to whatever i can to keep myself going through the day
3: that's andrew who requested only his first name be used he lives in west virginia he's in his late 20s and uses illicit stimulants because he can no longer access them via prescription.
2: I have both an ADHD diagnosis and numerous sleeping disorder diagnoses.
3: Like narcolepsy?
2: Indeed, Yes, narcolepsy was one of them, which is actually, they do actually use uh, stimulants to treat for that, although I was never given stimulants for that.
3: How come you can't get them from a doctor anymore?
2: Uh, Well, I... I haven't exactly gotten direct answers from a lot of them, but generally I, I, they say, or they seem to imply that I have, you know, drug seeking behavior. Uh, I know what I want and need. It's been what I've been prescribed most of my life. So I, I think that's kind of ridiculous at this stage, but
4: well, that, that, I, think... I,
3: I just want to interject for one second because I hate that phrase, drug seeking behavior. Like, Anyone who goes to a doctor for anything is drug-seeking. Like, that's why we go to doctors. (laughs) Absolutely, I agree. Um, Well, so it sounds like, A, you have a real medical need for stimulants to treat narcolepsy and make sure you're not, like, passing out behind the wheel or or whatever. Um, But I wonder maybe if you could speak to psychologically what kind of relationship you have with stimulants like what do you feel like they do for you
2: well the biggest thing is that they help me focus uh it's i have a really hard time keeping my focus where i want it and not getting distracted by things there definitely is an element of enjoying them uh, especially if i take too much which is something that definitely happens now that I, i can't just get a prescription Uh, But for the most part, I use them to focus and to stay clear-headed and functional throughout the day
3: Yeah, so it sounds like there's there's like a therapeutic value to your stimulant use it helps you
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to read a lot and it's it's become a lot harder and that's that's a big thing It helps me get through my work day more productively and I feel like a lot of the Surrounding issues that I have, you know, my other sleeping issues, uh, you know, the like anxiety and the ADD, you know, all those sort of things kind of go away when I can focus on my tasks and get the things done in my life that I need to get
3: done. And so, when when it comes to, you know, making sure that you're healthy or that you're not doing too much stimulants to the point where maybe you're not sleeping at all. Can you sort of speak to how you regulate and manage your stimulant use?
2: Yeah, so the first thing is that I generally, if I do have stimulants and I'm going to be able to be on stimulants, I try to put myself on an earlier sleep schedule, so I'm getting up earlier in the day. If, you know, it's Adderall or whatever it is, I generally know about how many milligrams I need, give or take, and I stick to that, I take it first thing in the morning and I don't take any more uh if i do have to to, if it is something like meth because i can't find adderall then i will cut myself out a small line in the morning um it's a little harder to know exactly how much not knowing the purity or whatever but generally a small line in the morning will get me through the day and let me sleep at the end of the night Uh, one of the biggest things that i've learned is to keep a water bottle on me at all times um amphetamines you don't uh salivate as much and that's a lot of the the mouth problems that people come across and also just keeping yourself hydrated when you're you know probably sweating that much and overdoing it that much if you're like running around doing you know busy work like at a job or something especially in the service industry so it's really important to drink a lot of water constantly um I, try to make sure to eat breakfast before I take my stimulants in the morning. Although at this point in my life, I can eat pretty much on anything. But even when I can't, I I force myself to eat something. Uh, And I try to eat again before I go to bed. Brushing your teeth, really important. And I mean, if you take it early enough in the day and you don't re-dose, then there's no reason you shouldn't be able to fall asleep at night if you're not doing too much.
3: Yeah, I feel like a lot of people have this misperception that stimulants cause all these health problems, and it really seems like, you know, maybe lifestyle isn't the right word, but that the symptoms of, of hygiene and, 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 and lack of sleep and ultimately psychosis from not sleeping, it sounds like those are all secondary to the stimulant itself. If
2: a normal person not on stimulants didn't salivate or didn't drink water or didn't eat or sleep, they would eventually run into the same problems.
3: Next, you'll hear from Francesca Kennedy. She lives in New York and she's had a history of heroin addiction that was treated by methadone and eventually buprenorphine. But now she goes to AA and she talks to me about how after a ADHD diagnosis, she found that taking stimulants really helped her. She has a lovely nuanced take about taking stimulants while being in recovery. I got
1: diagnosed with ADHD last September. I tried non-stimulant meds. Didn't have a lot of options because they don't respond well to SNRIs. They make me very sick. Couldn't take Entunet um, because I'm already taking a blood pressure medication for migraines, so I was left with Wellbutrin. I'd been on it before for depression, and it helped the depression, but it didn't do anything for the, you know, the ADHD symptoms. So my doctor was willing to, you know, let me try Adderall, and um, it's worked really well. Like I used to be, like. you know, people with ADHD have problems with everyday tasks Mm -hmm. and I always wondered how you know, how other people could manage to do this stuff that I just couldn't like, you know, I couldn't or like, I could do it but it would make me cry because I get so frustrated and anxious over it
3: So you're on a stimulant and Adderall, it's an amphetamine and per the sort of traditionally abstinence based Um, paradigm that people probably think that well then you're not really sober because well stimulants are a controlled substance and they're quote mind altering and and, and I guess it's incredible how you can participate in in groups that, that might hold prejudice against you but you know what's right for your mental health you know what's right for your life and being on a stimulant doesn't complicate your recovery identity, if that's what I'm hearing. No, it doesn't. And
1: not only that, it, I mean, it's really helpful. And I don't get high, I mean, I, I got a little like amped when I first started taking it, but that goes away. And I just have to focus. And uh, I actually didn't like the amped feeling. I was never, I was a downer person, not an upper person. So it was like, I don't like this medication. But that wore off. And now, you know, it works really well. And it's made my life a lot better. It's helped my anxiety. Like, my anxiety went way down because, like, a lot of that's how I got diagnosed. My therapist asked me, you know, well, what makes you anxious? And I listed a whole bunch of things that were like executive function dysfunction. <laughs> and she's like, have you ever been tested for ADHD? And I'm like, no. And she said, well, I think you should be because I think you have it. And I think that it could help your anxiety if you're treated for it. And she was right, you know, so. But, like I said, I don't share it in regular meetings. And I didn't, like... It's not as big a deal as when I was on medication-assisted treatment. Like, people are more understanding about, you know, taking Adderall or Quamipin or something than they are about Matt.
3: You were on methadone for some time?
1: I was on methadone and Suboxone. And I went to outpatient treatment, and we were expected to go to NA, and it was just like, I'm like, I'm not going because... What's the point? They're telling me I can't say anything
3: because I'm on methadone. Now that we've heard from a few users, I wanted to shift gears and introduce you to Sheila Vicaria from the Drug Policy Alliance. And she's going to talk about how harm reduction, as I mentioned typically being opioid-centric, can actually really benefit stimulant users. She is an expert on this issue and is amazing. So, here is Sheila Vicaria.
0: When we talk about harm reduction for the set level factors, right? So, the individual level factors, I think it's really important for people to be in the right frame of mind when they're about to use a stimulant drug. Um, and so, telling people to be mindful of the fact that, you know, the state of mind that you're in can affect whether or not. Um, you will feel more euphoric during this high, or that you might be more likely to feel a little paranoid or a little anxious or a little freaked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important to kind of help people be mindful of if I've been having a bad day, maybe it's not such a great idea for me to use right now because the last time I did, I really freaked out. I started seeing things, I started feeling a bit suspicious of the people around me. And it just kind of ruined the high and it wasn't the best for me, you know? Um, so if you can preventatively, you know, just talking to folks about like what kind of state of mind. Mind are you in when you use slash being ready to help folks who are already having an adverse experience ride it out. So harm reduction for set level factors is, you know, talking about being mindful before you use, but if you do use and end up having a bad experience, um, there's a term for it. Um, the folks at HRAC, you know, the Harm Reduction Action Center at De- in Denver, and some really great folks at the Harm Reduction Coalition um, have written extensively about the experience of overamping.
3: I think that's a great term. Do you want to tell our listeners what what overamping means?
0: Yeah. So overamping is so. So here's the thing. I mean, so you can have a really bad trip on a stimulant drug. You can have um, uncomfortable psychological feelings, you know, paranoia, anxiety, but you can, it it can also extend to more severe feelings, right? So like kind of feeling angry and aggressive. It can also um, lead to you feeling extremely warm and overheated. One of the things that stimulant drugs do is that they increase your heart rate and they increase your blood pressure. And in doing so, it can make you feel very warm. It can give you a you know, racing heartbeat, um, And at its absolute worst, it could lead someone to um, actually having a cardiac um, event um, or even potentially having something uh, close to a seizure, right? So there's a continuum of uh, experiences that may not be the ones that the person wanted to have when they used the stimulant drug. And it can be the lowest level of that anxiety that I described. It could be at the moderate level of like racing heartbeat, um, feeling uncomfortable, um, feeling very hot, all the way to the more more extreme end and the problem is is that right now our language is so limited we use the term overdose we kind of almost have thrown it around too much but really overdose isn't quite maybe the best word when we talk about stimulants which is why folks in this space have been using the term overamping because you're just getting amped up too much and of course there can still be lethal or incredibly harmful lasting negative effects associated with them but it can also include the range of more milder experiences so you know, one of the set factors that we should be mindful of in terms of reducing the harm is if someone is experiencing overamping, if someone is ex- is is overamping in the moment, you know, making sure to help keep them cool, right? So using like cool washcloths, making sure to take them somewhere that's less stimulating if they're overamping on the street or at a party or at a loud event, to kind of taking them somewhere that's dark and quiet and calm and being with someone who can kind of help to de escalate them and ground them and make them feel like they're connected and not alone. Um, All the way to the point where perhaps, you know, we need to make sure that this person is hydrated and because being hydrated can often help cool you down and also kind of you know, calm you down to perhaps maybe even needing to call the ambulance, right, and, and have someone be taken in and, and checked out because um, they're not de and perhaps there's a real serious cardiac or um, neurological issue happening. So harm reduction for a stimulant can include, you know, knowing how to deal with someone who's over-amping and to make them feel safe and secure and deescalate them or to get them the medical help that they need the last domain in which harm reduction is really important for people who use stimulants is the setting right when we talk about one of the one of the shortcomings of talking about supervised injection facilities is that oftentimes we end up leaving out stimulant users in this conversation, and we neglect the fact that setting factors such as being in a safe environment, not worrying about get ar- getting arrested, and being around people who care can be just as important to a stimulant user as the user of any other drug, which is why some people have been pushing the narrative to talk about more broadly supervised consumption spaces so that there's room for people who smoke drugs or who snort drugs to be able to come, or people talk about drug consumption rooms. And I think that these distinctions are actually really important because in some ways we end up leaving stimulant users out of the supervised consumption space conversation, when we don't acknowledge the fact that stimulant users need to be able to use in safe spaces.
3: I wanted this segment to feature the voices and experiences of stimulant users, So I think a good place to end is with Kat Humphreys from Denver's Harm Reduction Action Center. She put together a small zine that she cleverly named Methamphetazine. I'll link to it in a PDF in the show notes, but it features history, harm reduction tips, and all the art inside was drawn by stimulant users who probably drop into the harm reduction center, not just for sterile syringes but for a warm, welcoming environment where they can just be themselves. Here's Kat talking about her project.
4: So all of the art uh, in the zine was created by participants at the Harm Reduction Action Center, um, and... As I think we've probably mentioned before, you know we have um, drop-in hours every morning um, for our syringe access program. So this is largely folks who are injection drug users, um, who are hanging out uh, largely, mostly um, people experiencing homelessness as well. Um, so folks come in and hang in our space to grab a cup of coffee and some sterile syringes. And um, we also have formed a pretty deep sense of community in this space. Um, it's kind of the one space in the world where people can be honest about their drug use, and um, funny enough, it turns out when you're honest about things, um, people start to trust you more, and then you build up this really awesome community of folks, so um, when I had this idea for a zine with harm reduction information about meth in it, um, I knew that my participants were the best experts that I had um, access to, so they were the first people I I went to to consult, and um, I just, I mean, just, you can't, you can't walk through our drop-in without seeing so many amazing artists just sitting around drawing from um, day to day and, and so frequently they lose that art. It's stolen from them. Um gets taken in a sweep by the police, that sort of thing, if it's in their bags. Um, so I just wanted to, I, I wanted an opportunity for them to showcase their skills. Everyone was really excited to participate. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a story of hope at times, just because as I mentioned, people experiencing homelessness face so many barriers to holding on to their belongings that, and you know, to being incarcerated, I would be working with somebody in the middle of the drawing and then find out they were in jail for two weeks, right? And then um, would be waiting. So. It was a little touch-and-go, but it was fantastic. And my participants were so incredibly generous with their art. Um, I, beside, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be what it is without their contributions. I think there's also this um, misconception that people who use meth um, are different from people who use prescription stimulants, and that's also very, very false in my experience, Um, that this specific zine was, yes, reviewed by people who inject mass quantities of methamphetamine. This was also reviewed by people who take small amounts in nasal sprays on a regular basis, right? There are all sorts of different routes of administration and all sorts of different levels of dosages that will make you all sorts of different levels of effective, depending on your own personal body chemistry and what's right for you and your tolerance and a whole host of other factors. Um, So I just, I guess I say that to continue to try to break down the myth and the stigma that there aren't incredibly functional people who use meth every day. And I'm not talking about Adderall and I'm not talking about Ritalin. I'm talking about meth.
3: Thanks for listening. That's the show. But before I go, I wanted to mention that on Patreon, we'll be uploading some bonus material. For those who donate, you can listen to an interview with Dr. Jeffrey Sawyer from Minnesota Alternatives. He and I talk about stimulant replacement therapy and other novel approaches for treating stimulant use disorder. I also just wanted to thank all the stimulant users who shared their story with me, especially Bryce Foster, a recovery advocate, whose interview will also put up on Patreon. Thanks for listening to Part 1, Episode 5 of Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast, or check us out at Narcocast.com. If you like the show and you want to support us, there are two things you can do. First, give us a good rating on iTunes so others can find us when they search. You can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and soon we'll be on Spotify. The second thing you can do is become a subscriber and donate to us on patreon.com slash narcotica. Plus, if you donate $5 or more, you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and extended interviews. But give whatever you can. A little bit goes a long way, and we couldn't do this show without our Patreon subscribers. Thank you. If you want to send us a, a suggestion, or tell us about that one time you like took too much acid or something, drop us a line. You can also email us tips at tips at narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Muraf, Troy Farah, and myself, Zachary Siegel. Our co-producer is Luke Spicknall. The opening and closing credits music is by Glass Boy. Music for my segment is by Laura Snack. And that's the show.